You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast, where we are talking about our 130th episode the film Unforgiven from 1992, starring Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris, and Francis Fisher. The film is directed by Clint Eastwood. The DP is Jack Green, who also worked with Eastwood on Bridges of Madison County and 13 other films. Coincidentally, he also was the DP on Serenity that we'll be talking about next week. And the film was written by David Webb Peoples, who also coincidentally wrote Blade Runner in 82 that we talked about last week. And then in 1995, he wrote 12 Monkeys. The synopsis for this film is a retired old West gunslinger, William Money, reluctantly takes on one last job with the help of his partner, Ned Logan, and a young man named the Schofield Kid. The tagline for this film is, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. Great tagline. That's a line of dialogue from the film, and it's one of the most uh, iconic, so I like. And it really is, upon my research, it very much falls in your theory because it does describe kind of like the big question for this film. Yeah. We're going to talk about Westerns and um, the themes found in Westerns. And traditionally, it's very much if the bad guys kill somebody, that's what makes them bad guys, I guess. (laughs) And the good guys, if they kill, it's only to protect people. But it doesn't really, most Westerns don't put very much emphasis on what happens to a person when they kill somebody? And that is what this film is kind of wrestling with. And in the scene, the Schofield kid even, I mean, both him and William Money kind of discuss the psychological effects on them since, since you know, once they kill a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that theme of it's a hell of a thing to kill a man also establishes as we see in this film, how very few people are actually capable of that, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a hell of a thing. Mm -hmm. Why don't you kick us off with your pickup line and then we'll talk about the film a little bit more. Jesus. (laughs) So I had a hard time getting a clear pickup line because the opening scene where we have dialogue, Strawberry Alice, who is a sex worker, is doing her job with a cowboy Mm -hmm. and the sound isn't the best. And as you might imagine, they are not delivering clear dialogue. They are otherwise occupied. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) so let me go over so that as we continue our conversation, it kind of fits within one of the very first classes I took at film school was a genre class where we talked about all the different genres and And Westerns was one of them. And so typically in a Western, you see cowboys and you see gunslingers. 
they're portrayed, they're often iconic characters in the West with the new frontier and they're portrayed as rugged and tough and independent individuals who embody the values of that Western American frontier. Um, like I said, it's the, the frontier setting with the open landscapes and wide open spaces. There's often saloons where gambling is occurring and they can drink and they often get into fights in the saloon as well as, you know, there's then the, the female companionship is often found in the saloon. They're often on horseback because that was a common mode of transportation in the Westerns. And so, and that also gives the sense of freedom and independence. There's shootouts and showdowns, gunfights between the good and the bad. And there's very much this clear, you're either a good guy or a bad guy. You're either with the law or against the law. There are marshals and sheriffs and other lawmen trying to bring justice, but then there's the lawless, the, you know, the bad element that, that we're trying to keep out of the town. There's a common theme of revenge sometimes in Westerns. And then very much, like I mentioned before, kind of the morality of it, the, and the honor of what the good guys are fighting for is, and then there's always the lone hero the one who stands up and fights for justice, even in the face of great danger. So these are all things that commonly happen in Westerns. And Unforgiven kind of checks a lot of those boxes. But the one thing that it did do was kind of look at the killing aspect. And ironically, Gene Hackman did not want to take this part because he felt like he had been in quite a few movies that glorified violence and he just was getting a bad taste in his mouth with it. And this was 92. So there was some things politically maybe that was going on. Wasn't that right about the time of Rodney King and, and kind of the abuses, I think. Yeah, that makes, that sounds about right. Yeah. Oh, in fact it was because when Gene finally, Clint asked him, read it, read the script one more time. I think we can actually make a statement against the violence. And so then Gene agreed and Clint told him to model little Bill Daggett, his character on then Los Angeles police chief, Daryl Gates. And the Rodney King beatings were, yeah, the March previous to this film coming out. So probably they, they were on the heels of that when they filmed this. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention that because I feel like the character of Little Bill, played by Hackman, is one of the more violent characters in the film. Right. And it's interesting because in, in you know, when I do my research, Clint said that Hackman's character just wanted to kind of finish building his house and he kind of wanted to retire and he didn't want to get involved in all of the violence. Yet, like you said, his character is pretty violent and it's almost like he would rather just stay at his cabin along the river. But when he comes to the town and has to do his sheriff duties, it's almost like um, another personality shows up. Which is probably a, a good lesson on people in power, right? They're just people, but then they have this persona, but we have to be careful what that persona is because it can get away from who they are as a person but you mentioned earlier when talking about Westerns, kind of the, the 
honor and morality and justice, they establish that through a line of dialogue, I think, that English Bob shoots Chinese folk. Like that's his, I couldn't tell if it is his vocation or a hobby. Right. But that's not necessarily a good guy. Nope. So when little Bill says, give me your gun and then beats the living crap out of him, you know, eh, we're not too cut up about it because English Bob is a pretty bad dude. We've kind of established that. So they they show the little Bill is kind of, maybe someone would say like Daryl Gates, not entirely good, not entirely bad, right? Because him whooping English Bob and sending him out of town certainly made the Chinese folk happy, but that's a, a bad dude. Getting him out of town is kind of, you know, worth it. But then you see his behavior later when he refuses to apply kind of the same effort to when the the poor prostitute gets cut up and he's like, okay, well, you know, give some horses to the pimp and we'll call it even. That is so far from justice, right? To show in that one character. And, and I do, do recall reading that this script was unmade for many, many years. And I think it's fascinating. Is it possible that it it needed that kind of time and place for Eastwood to have the right perspective on the screenplay and for everybody involved to be where they needed to be to make this film. It's possible. Um, Eastwood bought the rights for this. I don't know when, but early enough that he felt like I'm too young to play this part, which honestly I felt like he kind of was maybe a little bit too old because at his age I didn't buy that I guess those two kids seemed awfully young to be for him to be dad. And his wife died at 29, according to the gravestone. And that wasn't too long before we saw him. So he would have been significantly older than her. Maybe that was reasonable at that time. Right. So basically he threw it in a drawer and kind of forgot about it. And then somebody approached him. I can't remember who and said, Maybe it was, oh, I think it was the, 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 I don't think it was the writer. I think it was Jack Green maybe, but somebody approached him and said, Hey, you ought to make that movie that you bought a while back. And he, I think he kind of forgot about it. And then he was like, oh yeah, it was almost like now I really better hurry. And right. Yeah. How much did I pay for that? Oops. Yeah. This definitely has, you know, it's got the horses, it's got the wide open spaces, we've got cowboy hats, we have a town that, you know, a lot of Westerns are centered around a town and and creating law and order in that town, which is funny because the minute you put up a saloon, I feel like you're going to have trouble with law and order. (laughs) Right. And I'm pretty confident that at that time, prostitution was not legal. So, you know, having law and order with a publicly visible, right, wide open brothel Mm -hmm. is kind of an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. So it says, from Wikipedia, it says, like other revisionist Westerns, Unforgiven is primarily concerned with deconstructing the morality, black and white vision of the American West that it was established by traditional Westerns within the genre. And then David Webb Peoples says that the script is saturated with an unnerving reminders of money's own horrific past as a murderer and a gunfighter haunted by the lives he's taken. 
And I would say at the very end there, when he is dying himself and, and kind of, I think is probably fearing what they believed at the time would happen. You know, the, the, uh, the reckoning, I think he was nervous about that and, and scared quite honestly, when he was talking to Ned, his buddy. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting to call it revisionist. I mean, I guess it's revisionist in the sense of it's not Gene Autry with the white hat and, and you know, the, the pretty girl that he gets at the end of the film, because I actually think this is probably more representative of what it really was like in the West. I, and I don't want to get too far at, into the philosophy of this, but I, I believe that the vast majority of people in the West were probably pretty peace-loving, good people. And of course, there were some remarkably bad dudes, but my guess is they were few and far between simply because society couldn't function if every town was continuously getting shot up by people. So to me, showing that this Bill Money, this guy, or Will Money, I'm sorry, who who is a notorious and prolific killer, right? He would have been really fairly solitary and unique. There wouldn't have been many like him. And I think this film represents that, that even like a guy like an English Bob who did kill people, he was not in the class of Eastwood's Will Money as far as the danger, right? Um, that guy was like pretty singular in his deadliness. And that, to me, makes sense. I don't, I don't consider that revisionist of actual history, but certainly for the genre, it's a take, a different take. Mm-hmm. I think it says that Clint and the screenwriter didn't set out to make an anti-violence movie. It says he was more interested in deconstructing the myth of the Old West mm-hmm. with its clear distinction of heroes and villains, kind of like right. what you were saying. And he wanted to show an inglorious depiction of death and so especially when we first meet money and he's proposed by the Schofield kid to come he sees he needs to provide for his kids and I think you know he kind of is like he justifies it because he needs this is a way he knows how to make money and then he's able to provide for his kids so it's almost like he justifies it in his mind that it's worth it this one last time Right, definitely. Also, as I saw it, the way it was shot, one of the deciding factors was the description of the damage done to the prostitute, which of course was exaggerated, like we all know happens. But And then he would tell Ned and the other people, like, this is what they did to her. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that sense of morality does come into play as another factor. But you're right, the 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 money was kind of a thing, and that's all he had going for him. And I really liked Eastwood's choice to show him falling on his face in the mud chasing pigs because it's so humbling, right? They don't, again, see, we don't see him as kind of that John Wayne character right. who's in charge of everything. He's just this guy rolling around in the mud with these pigs. And then at the very beginning, he can't get on his horse. It's like right. something that every cowboy in every Western, they just, right. you know, they put their foot in that um, stirrup and they just throw that leg over and they make it look so easy. I think anybody who has tried to get on a horse, you realize how difficult it is. And when he can't even 
get that horse to stand still so he can stand up and throw his leg over it. It really, it's embarrassing. We're all like kind of embarrassed for him. And it comes back later to put him at risk. Um, but I, you're right. Kind of taking those parts of the cowboy myth and evaporating them. But then kind of the other part that I thought was where we see they're going to get one of the cowboys who harmed the girl and Ned can't pull the trigger because even though they did some bad things when they were younger, he, he doesn't have it in him anymore. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because later the Schofield kid shoots a guy and I don't think he kills him right away. And Clint says, shoot him again, shoot him again. And the kid can't do it. And so Clint picks up his rifle and he shoots him really fast. And there's something about it that made me feel like it's almost kind of like the honor is to do it in a way that is quick and painless. Like, okay, we have to kill this guy, but right. let's do it humanely. And I had this feeling when I was watching it and I was later, my, my feeling was correct. Clint said like, you know, he referenced that kind of like the time when, you know, he had to kill the guy. It was almost like killing um, livestock or, or, you know, putting right. an animal down to put it out of its misery. And so I very much, my reading was correct. And I thought that was an interesting kind of take also. And there's the bit at um, the end where he talks throughout the film about how all these other killings, he didn't remember most of them because he was drunk at the time. So as a viewer, when we see Will Money start drinking again, we know, oh, it's on, right? Because he's going back into that place. And then also it's a commentary, though, from what Eastwood is saying is that killing is less about the physical skill and more about the psychological mindset. And even the character talks about that, right? He has a line in there about something like shoot as fast as you can without missing, basically, that the key isn't so much the quick draw, which is another you know common trope or these other things, but it was the ability to, in that situation, think calmly and shoot straight. And, and very few people have that. So that was his kind of power where he was in you know, this, this saloon with all these people who are armed and you would think, well, this is a matter of a few seconds and he's going to be shot up. But we know from military combat and police shootings that most people miss with all of their shots. Right. So was there anything else about either the writing or the cinematography in this that you want to talk about? Well, the, the, the writing This is not a funny movie, but it had a couple of funny kind of bits about it. And one that I really enjoyed was The Duck of Death, where the the very stereotypical nerdy writer, and dare I say Jewish, he looked to be, that's where they were going. He wrote a book about English Bob, and he called him The Duke of Death. And Gene Hackman kept pronouncing it as The Duck of Death. So that was funny on several levels. One, it reminded me of a certain president who kept referring to him as Saddam, right? The schoolyard, like nine-year-old taunt of mispronouncing someone's name. But then also, to me, the duck of death. 
It just feels like an Aflac callback. I thought it was kind of funny. So what what little bits of humor there are are, are somewhat dark, right? And we, we see the other line that I thought was unintentionally hilarious is little Bill says to Will Money, you just shot an unarmed man. And Will Money replies immediately, he should have armed himself. Right, I like and that. And that was, uh, it was kind of a Yeah, a, we a both fun chuckled line. when that happened. Yeah. I noticed there was a, a lot that, that Eastwood and the DP played with lighting a lot. As far as like, it's almost somewhat more the sets as well, but the whorehouse was so tight. Mm-hmm. The hallways and with all the people and, and, and the doors, it was very tight. And any place in that saloon, right, was probably realistically, but it was poorly lit. Mm-hmm. And we saw when the Schofield kid comes to Will Money's house, I thought it was fascinating that the kid was, was lit really well, but Money was just silhouetted, right? And so I thought that was an interesting thing to show that he was almost kind of a shadow of himself. And mm-hmm. this other kid was the one who was real and three-dimensional. And there was a fair amount of silhouettes in there and some pretty high co- contrast shots but you mentioned the open expanses and they had several of the shots but one of them that really stuck out to me was that after they the Schofield kid shoots the guy in the latrine which again is deflating the myth of these like you know larger than life like this guy was literally caught with his pants down and isn't it um for the Schofield kid it's not that honorable because it was you know it's like punching a guy from behind right like yeah and, and so after that, there's a, a wide shot where the Schofield kid is, is sitting down at the base of a tree and Will Money is standing and talking to him and, they, and they're all in silhouette. It's such kind of a, a classic Western looking shot. Mm-hmm. And then they cut to the Schofield kid really, uh, he may have even been crying at that time. He's struggling with, with the impact of what he's done and i think that's where will money gives the line it's a hell of a thing to kill a man you take all he's ever had and all he'll ever have you know it's it's mm-hmm. um so i thought that was it, the way they they shot it was really it, it called back to those tropes but kind of inverted them a little bit mm-hmm. yep so a couple bits of trivia. The boots that Clint Eastwood wore are the same ones he wore in Rawhide in 59. They're part of his personal collection. And in 2005, they were loaned to the Sergio Leone exhibit at the Gene Autry Museum. And Clint was, it basically bookended his career in Westerns. He was a huge Sergio Leone fan. In fact, one of the tombstones says S. Leon mm. in the cemetery as kind of a nod because he worked with him in all the spaghetti westerns. And Right. I'm thinking Fistful of Dollars and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, that's kind of the first things I remember Eastwood from. So did that kind of break his career? is he did the spaghetti westerns and then he came back to Hollywood and had enough juice to do the things we know him for after that. Yeah, he did a couple things, but yeah, it was mostly the westerns that, and he credits Sergio Leone not only for teaching him kind of good direction, like being a good director, but also for his career. To maintain this, the feel on the set, no motor vehicles were allowed. And so everything had to be brought, everything from equipment to people, food, 
was brought in by a horse and wagon because they wanted Clint wanted everyone to feel the primitiveness of the of the set of the town. Right. I wondered if trains counted. Could they put like the camera equipment on a train car and bring it in that way? It was only six miles, but okay. still, that's what. Oh, what about star wagons? Were they allowed to be on set if they were towed in by I horses? I don't believe so. When I saw the behind the scenes, it looked wow. like, it, yeah, it was that primitive. I think that star wagon would take away, you know, from. Yeah, yeah sure. Like, did was hair and makeup in a tent then? Fascinating. I love yeah. this idea. The town was built in, from scratch in 32 days up in Alberta, Canada. Clint was in Alberta earlier on a film and he was like you know if i ever make a western this would be a beautiful part of the you know country to make one in so i wonder if the the carpenters really miss westerns because they always have to build the town when they shoot a western right they get lots of work (laughs) and and maybe it's fun because you get to build different things you build a saloon a barber place the sheriff's office with the jail like ah, it just seems like maybe a church at the end of the street so here's another question yeah uh, maybe one of our super fans can help us out there is very much a standard floor plan to western towns in movies but how accurate was that like i mean as we've established before hollywood is not necessarily accurate they could you know cheat in a thousand different ways to make the movie easier or cheaper to shoot so i'm just curious was there kind of a standard floor plan or was it just no we in westerns we've decided that you know the church goes at the end of the street and the saloons here and the stables there you know that kind of thing no it's a great question and i don't know the answer although i believe that some of so there's a set in Tucson, Arizona, where they film many Westerns. In fact, that's where they filmed Tombstone. Yeah, and that might explain it, right? Is if they use the same set over and over again. I was wondering if maybe on the Warner Brothers back lot and Burbank, there is a common, like a street they use for it or what have you. If you recall in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... They are shooting a Western at one point, and I thought that was on the studio lot. Yeah, I know, I think it's Warner Brothers has a studio, as a lot where there's a Western set, and then I know outside of LA North, I believe, there's ranches that they commonly would film Westerns at. And I think there's even one down near Eugene in Oregon, where they filmed a couple of of westerns back in the day i know there's locations but i don't know if there's like a standing set is that what you mean uh i thought it was standing there as a ranch but i could be wrong oh interesting so one fun thing that i thought you would enjoy and i will include the photo in our show notes because it's just funny but so there's a scene where clint ned i should say william money ned and the Schofield kid are all on horses and they're talking to one another and they're fighting about like kind of what should be done next. Have you ever thought, how do they keep the horses still while they have this argument and, and fight? I have never thought of that, but that's a very good question. Because the horse is going to kind of move around and then you're in focus and out of focus, right? Yeah, yeah. So what they do is they shoot some scenes on horseback and then they put the actors, they straddle ladders. 
Not no. even saddles? Mm-mm. Oh, that's hilarious. So Morgan and the Schofield kid and Clint are all sitting. And I'll, like I said, I'll include this picture. Oh, that's priceless. They're all sitting on ladders in the field with the camera so that they can have this argument. And the so, right height. And just, yeah, and they're the right But just imagine, because horses don't stand perfectly still. So I wonder if they have to like kind of gesticulate with their torso to mimic okay. the horse kind of moving around. So now I'm immediately thinking of when they put them in a car and they're not really driving and right. they make all the ridiculous hand motions on right. the wheel. And okay, I will never be able to watch a horse back argument again without thinking of this right looking for uh-huh. shooting yeah. just yeah. above the head right. of the horse yeah to try much. to sell it right yeah and then like an overactor like me would then like wave away a horse fly or something really <laughs> over the top cut okay uh dodge uh, none of the horse fly action okay back to one <laughs> Um, was there any head trauma yeah. in this film? Yeah, there's a little bit. Well, okay. So the kind of opening inciting incident, there is some knife trauma to the poor prostitute's face, which is a head-related thing. Very sad. Um, prostitutes throw horse apples at the cowboy's head when he tries to buy them off with a horse later. Little Bill punches English Bob in the face before kicking the crap out of him. A Little Bill pistol whips Will and then kicks the crap out of him. And then there's lots of shooting, which very little I think is in the head. I think most of it's in the torso. And I don't believe we have a romance in this film. Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. We do not have any romance smoochy. There's a line, just because we let those smelly fools ride us like horses don't mean we got to let them brand us like horses. That kind of establishes there's not a lot of romance in this film. Yeah, the ladies didn't fare so well. They didn't. And... You know, maybe that's realistic, but it made me sad nonetheless. Very much so. And uh, no driving. Uh, No driving. There are no uh, vehicles on the set even. I don't know enough about horseback riding to give a horseback riding review. Although I did read that in order to get the horse to not let him on, Clint would pull back on the left rein alone to get it to turn instead of letting him stand up in the saddle. So I do know a listener named Adrian that if she wanted to could probably comment on the horseback riding. Yeah. I I was thinking of this while watching another film recently that actors in westerns must be fairly skilled horsemen and horsewomen because we see them in the wide shot so much. It would be hard to fake that, I think. And that's probably not a skill that's very common anymore. Right. I agree with you. I think Clint and in some of the other films that we're talking about this month, I think they, I saw behind the scenes and Val Kilmer was, you know, they had to go back to one and it was a scene where him and Kurt Russell are, 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 you know, riding the horses and, and watching Val go, you know, go back to one, go back to the starting place he looked very comfortable on that horse. And I was like, Oh wow. I bet that's kind of fun. It's, you know, I know it's hard to work with animals and sometimes they don't cooperate, but you know, you don't, you don't just mosey back to one. You get to ride your horse back to one. I just thought I was like, that looks fun. Now I don't know the very specifics of this, but I am aware that cavalry people who would fight on horseback 
were able to direct the horse with just their their knees and their weight because they needed their hands for the fighting parts, which is a level of horsemanship that I think would be very difficult to, I mean, it would take, I would think, thousands of hours of practice to get there. And so credit to Mr. Kilmer and any of these other actors who are able to, to the lay person, or not to the lay person, to an experienced person like listener Adrian, to pull it off, right? Because I, I don't feel like I have enough knowledge to distinguish whether somebody's really doing it right. But I bet if you're an accomplished equestrian, you look at the screen, and you're like, ah, they know what they're doing, or that guy's an idiot. Right, right. Yeah, like you do with all the Driving. coding scenes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Et cetera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. All right, just before we do, I want to tell you that this film ranked number four on the American Film Institute's list of the greatest films in the genre of Western in June of 2008. So we picked a winner. So let's see if audiences agreed. The budget for this film was $14.4 million. And domestically, it brought in 101.1 million. So right. that is... And 7X. Then, yeah. And then worldwide, 159 million, which that's an 11X. Adjusted for today, that would be like 223.6 million. So I would say it did quite well. It scores very high on IMDb, 8.2 out of 10. Critics love this movie at 96%, and audiences aren't that far behind at 93%. It's a little long, so you might need a pee break at 2 hours, <laughs> 10 minutes. It's rated R, and it is classified as a drama western. It won many awards. It's a Warner Brothers picture. It won 50 awards and got 47 nominations among them um it won the oscar for the best picture gene hackman won for the best supporting actor and clint eastwood won for the best director this movie laid to rest clint eastwood's long-standing statement why he would never win an oscar he said he reckoned that he would never be in the running first because he's not jewish and second because he makes too much money and thirdly because he doesn't really give a bleep <laughs> so since his double oscar win for this movie he has gone on to win two more as well as the irving thalberg memorial award and has been nominated an additional six times we watched this on apple for three dollars and 99 cents so i i don't think it was available anywhere else Okay, that just about does it for this second week of August films. Please send in your guess as to what you think. We did Blade Runner last week, Unforgiven this week. Next week, we're doing Serenity, followed up by Tombstone. So it, you can make a guess in the email, christy at dodgemediaproductions.com. And never forget, Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.